You're listening to High Temperature Times. Come for the refractory information and news, but stay for the canned jokes and witty humor. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. I think I've laid out pretty solidly so far that I'm a ceramics guy. Oxides are my jam. Metallurgy is so foreign to me that I can't even pronounce it right. I mean, heck, I run a refractory podcast focused entirely on ceramic refractory materials, and it's got enough knowledge and history packed into it that I should be happy just being the ceramics guy. But here's the thing. There are metals involved in the refractor industry. Whether it be the shell of the vessel the refractors are protecting, or the anchors that hold monolithic refractories to the wall, or steel needles sometimes put into the monolithic refractories to increase their thermal shock resistance, you sometimes have to learn a little bit about metals to get the full picture. And boy howdy, there's a lot of knowledge and history packed into this subset of materials too. So today, I'm going to share what I can about stainless steel fibers using refractory bodies, their features, and their limitations. Full credit goes to the technical people at Ribbon Technology, aka RibTech, and FiberCon International for helping me find the right door to start understanding this wild side of refractories. So what are stainless steel needles and why are they used? Well, the what is a pretty easy one. They're small diameter needles that range in lengths of about half inch to one and a quarter inches. Different manufacturers will offer different thicknesses and lengths. But one very important factor here is the aspect ratio. That's the length of the fiber divided by the thickness. Another one of those crazy science things here, but a fiber with an aspect ratio over 60 will tend to crumple up into a ball when it's mixed in the mixer, making it pretty useless as a needle. So you want to stay under that magic number. You might think to go with a very low aspect ratio, but that will affect the number of needles you have. So you should probably end up in that sweet spot around 35 to 45, depending on the material, the application, or the install method. On the other side, why do people use them? Well, for a lot of reasons, but primarily because they increase thermal shock resistance and increase mechanical shock or impact resistance to the castable they're used in. They can be added at a small percentage, typically 1-3% to when mixing the castable, and they help hold the material together when the cracks are trying to form. Remember, ceramics are incredibly strong, but incredibly brittle. They might be able to take a beating, but they're not going to take a lot of them. Metals, on the other hand, typically have a lower strength, but their elastic properties mean that they can utilize that strength over and over again. So by using a small percentage in your castable, the refractory brings the high strength, while the needles make up for the brittle properties by preventing those cracks from forming. Now, my old life in manufacturing is creeping back up because I feel like I should lay out a little about how these needles are made. I promise I do have a good reason for talking about this. They can be made in a couple different ways. The first is cutting them from a wire, which should be pretty easy to imagine. Draw a wire from a billet thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner to the gauge that you want, say half a millimeter or a twentieth of an inch, and then cut it to your specific length. Another way of making them is cutting a small slit off the edge of a steel roll called slit sheet needles. The last method is to extract the wire from a melt, and this one's a little crazier. Basically, a water-cooled wheel is skimmed along the surface of a melt, freezing the metal into a tiny little mold. As the wheel spins off that frozen metal off the melt, it flies through the air, cooling further and landing in a chamber for a little further processing. That further processing being uh, removing some of the oxidation that sometimes forms on the surface because you're flinging a hot metal through the air. And as I'll mention later, oxidation happens. So why one over the other? Melt extract fibers have a coarser surface finish than cut wire or slit sheet fibers, and that helps them grip the refractory better. Cut wire fibers and slit sheet fibers will typically have to utilize geometries like crimping, hooked ends, or cone tips to help it lock into the refractory. Also, slit sheet fibers are more corrosion resistant and less likely to include defects that are introduced in the drawing process that happens with cut wire fibers. 
Some geometries even help the material flow through casting or gunning rings better. There's actually some really cool science on needle dimension aspect ratio and stiffness and how they relate to flow and needle dispersion in the mix, but I'm not going to get into that because I'll probably just say something wrong. But feel free to reach out to us and I can point you in the right direction if you'd like to learn more. Now, when it comes to stainless steel, there are more flavors than Baskin Robbins. Typically, we're using materials like 304 stainless steel. For those non-metallurgists out there like me, there's a lot of difference in these grades of stainless steel from varying properties to different grain formations to price, but we're going to dumb that way down and just look at the chemistry of the grades. 304 stainless is an austenitic steel that contains chrome and nickel. Moving up to materials like 310 or 330, you start to introduce more nickel going from roughly 8 to 10% in 304 all the way to roughly 35% in 330. The nickel has the benefit of adding an appreciable amount to the temperature resistance of the fibers, though recognizing that nickel is an expensive material, your cost will probably go up too. But hell, it's only 1-3% addition to your refractory, right? Or you can go a different direction with 406 stainless, which is an aluminized alloy of stainless steel. I brought up these different grades so I could talk about temperature resistance, so let's do that. At HWI, we typically recommend that you don't use stainless steel fibers if your temperature is above 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. You might have heard that, or you might not have, but let's look at why. Well, if you've ever seen my rust bucket of a car, you'd learn that steel oxidizes. Different grades of steel oxidize at different rates at different temperatures. So 304 stainless, the most common grade of stainless steel used for needles, oxidizes at roughly 2000 Fahrenheit when put on under constant temperature. This means that your elastic metal needle that makes up for the brittle nature of your refractory is no longer elastic because it's no longer a metal. You've turned your metallic stainless steel into a brittle, crumbly bit of rust. So what was protecting your refractory from thermal and mechanical shock is now actually a void or defect that's going to reduce the overall strength of the refractory material. That's a big no-no. By going from 304 stainless to 310 or 330 stainless, you can buy a couple hundred degrees, meaning material won't oxidize until roughly 2200 Fahrenheit, but that's not much. In our other flavor of aluminized stainless steel 406, the rust resistance brought on through the aluminum addition helps take you to 2275. If you want to go to higher temperatures, you're going to need to go with a specialty alloy like Inconel or something along those lines, or you can utilize a coarse aggregate refractory material to do what needles are doing all along. Let's touch on that for a second. What can I say? I'll never not be a ceramics guy. So we've talked about this before, but castable refractories are combinations of large grain materials called aggregate mixed with medium and fine grain materials called the matrix that help it flow and center and have that intermediate strength. But the aggregate is the hard and robust stuff. It's a material that's been fired to a high temperature to achieve the highest density and highest strength it can, and then crushed to a particular size and used in the castable. It's always a fight for castables, because as lovely as it would be to have those amazingly tough aggregate all throughout your material, it wouldn't flow too well. A material that's made of nothing but those amazingly tough, high-fired materials is called a brick. And yeah, bricks don't flow. But we can pull some tricks and add some larger aggregate without affecting the flow too greatly. We call these coarse aggregate castables. Here we increase the size of the aggregate to increase thermal shock and mechanical impact resistance. Whereas stainless steel needles would resist crack growth and crack propagation by holding the material together like a chain, coarse aggregate castables resist crack growth and propagation by redirecting and deflecting cracks. As a crack is growing through a castable, it will go through the matrix materials but not have the energy to crack the aggregate, which forces it to change direction and go around. Now, every time a crack has to change direction, it loses energy and eventually stops. So if we have more or larger aggregate, the crack will have to deflect more and more times, increasing the overall resistance to crack growth from thermal or mechanical shock. 
So yeah, coarse aggregate castables are pretty cool. Anyway, let's get back to stainless steel needles and their temperature resistance. One of the phrases you might have caught me using back there is their temperature resistance under constant temperature. But we're putting these guys in there to prevent thermal shock. If we had constant temperature, we wouldn't need them in the first place. So what's their temperature resistance under cyclical conditions? Before I answer that, let me crack open my science textbook again. Metals are pretty stable materials, but reactions are always trying to happen. Some reactions, like the patina going on with their Lady Liberty, just take a serious amount of time. Aluminum and titanium metals actually react very quickly with atmosphere, forming an imperceptibly thin surface layer of oxide that actually protects the base metal from further reaction. Other materials, like stainless steel, will not react under standard conditions at any appreciable rate. So if you want a reaction to occur, you're going to need to add temperature. You might say that it needs some high temperature times. Sorry. Sorry. So... Around 1100 Fahrenheit, the chrome in stainless steel begins to deplete from the grain boundaries of the metal, forming an intermetallic compound consisting of chromium and iron, called the sigma phase. This material is hard and brittle, not elastic like the original material, but as I mentioned, it doesn't occur at room temperature. It requires temperatures between 1050 Fahrenheit and 1700 Fahrenheit to form, with the sigma phase being deepest and fastest forming around 1600 Fahrenheit. Now, sigma phase formation is not necessarily the end of the world. Just like with aluminum, the sigma phase formation could further protect the rest of the material. At constant temperature, the material will still behave admirably even with the level of sigma phase formation occurring. However, when temperature cycling occurs, that brittle intermetallic iron chromium compound will cause cracking and weakening of the stainless steel material. This is called sigma phase embrittlement, and it's why materials like 304 stainless are only rated to 1600 Fahrenheit in cyclical conditions. Any higher, and the sigma phase formation will render the needles useless. By going to a 310 or 330 stainless material, the lower levels of chromium and increased levels of nickel drive the energy required for sigma phase formation up, meaning higher use temperatures and cyclical conditions are possible. That said, because they still are a chromium-based metallic alloy, sigma phase formation is still certainly possible, and 310 and 330 stainless are still only able to reach 1900 Fahrenheit in cyclical conditions compared to their 2200 Fahrenheit that's allowable in constant conditions. Interestingly, with 406 stainless, they managed to create a highly refractory metal that won't undergo severe sigma phase embrittlement because the chromium concentration is low enough to limit potential sigma phase formation substantially. However, aluminum ferrite formation still limits the cyclical condition temperature to 1900 Fahrenheit. I guess it's hard to win in these fields, huh? But again, if you want to utilize needles for thermal shock resistance in instances where your temperatures go above 2000 Fahrenheit, you're going to need a super alloy based needle like Inconel or something along those lines, or you're going to need to utilize a coarse aggregate containing castable. So here's a fun tidbit on how HWI tests things like impact resistance and thermal shock resistance. Thermal shock resistance is measured by taking a cube of material and heating it to 2200 Fahrenheit before quenching it in water, allowing it to dry and then repeating the process. As you might guess, stainless steel needles don't hold up too well to this test since the test parameters are above the maximum use temperature of the material, especially given the cyclical nature. Coarse aggregate castables behave incredibly well, lasting at least 40 cycles, which is our cap because we can't reasonably ask our technicians to stand in front of a hot furnace for any longer than that, unless we consider it torture. Impact testing is even more fun. We take a panel of material, place it in a furnace at 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, and fire a series of half-inch stainless steel balls at them recording the number of shots it takes for the material to fail. Unsurprisingly, the more fibers you put in, the more shots it could take before a crack propagates the entire way through the material. And I might as well continue down this trend of talking about coarse aggregate castables by mentioning that it maintains an equal impact resistance to a standard level of fiber addition. 
As much as I would love to say that coarse aggregate castables are the far superior product to stainless steel needles, it just isn't true. For one, you can add stainless steel needles to any product you wish, while coarse aggregate products are only available in materials like Versflow 45C, Versflow 55ARC, Versflow 65ALC, Versflow 70C, and Versflow 80C, as well as ArmorCast 80ALC and ArmorTech 65ALC for aluminum applications. Also, with stainless steel needles, you have the ability to tailor the additions to better control the flow parameters of the castable. Like I said, these aggregates are typically considered the enemy of a well-flowing castable, no matter how many clever tricks we play to aid that. Lastly, and this is pretty cool, you can actually gun materials with stainless steel needles, though there are some serious challenges to prevent the needles from causing bridging and blocking in the hopper. So yeah, I guess I can officially say that I'm more than just a ceramics guy now. I now know the tiniest smidgen of information about stainless steel needles and refractory materials, and I hope that you learned something too. If you'd like to learn more about the use of stainless steel needles in any application, or are interested in learning, hearing more about coarse aggregate castables for those areas where stainless steel needles just won't hold up, reach out to us at tactical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. It's my goal to help refractory users new and tenured learn more about it, the products they're using. So be sure to subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts or on Spotify to catch this show monthly. Thanks for listening.